a Podcast One production. Mo Gaudet is the former Chief Business Officer for Google X, entrepreneur and the author of the book Solve for Happy, Engineering Your Path to Joy. After a tragic life event, Mo's mission became to help one billion people become happier, a movement to create a small-scale global pandemic of joy. Mo says every moment of your life is neither all good nor all bad. When you clear your thoughts and see beyond the illusion of knowledge, you will realise that what Shakespeare wisely said is true. Nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. In this intimate conversation, Mo and I ponder the equation for happiness, the tragedy of losing his son and the power of love. I feel I want people to be happy. And when people see that in me, when they see me, you know, trying to really, really, really make a difference, not because I can, but do we want to? Do we want it enough? Do we give that love to others? And when you give that love to others, something amazing happens. Like literally, the universe bulges with that love that you put out there and then pours love back at you. And it's amazing when you think about it. It's just like the second law of thermodynamics. It just doesn't go to waste. It doesn't get destroyed. It doesn't start from scratch. You have to give it so that you get it back. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Through his 12-year research on the topic of happiness, Mo Gaudat has created an algorithm and a repeatable, well-engineered model to reach a state of uninterrupted happiness, regardless of your circumstances. In this episode, you will learn the simple steps to create a life filled with joy and love. Mo, Soul for Happy, the book you have written, opened my mind and heart in the most incredible way. I learned so much and I I really look forward to diving into a lot of what it covers today. But let's start with you. You talk about being so blessed and fortunate and this all started from a young age. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I I sometimes say I'm the luckiest person you will ever meet. And, you know, I don't know if that is true or if that's how I feel or if that is making me the luckiest person you've ever met, but that's surely something that I have noticed. I've, I've had wonderful parents who didn't traumatize me too much. Uh, you know, they traumatized me a little. I was the third child, so they traumatized my brothers a little more. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in Egypt with a, I was blessed with a reasonable IQ. Uh, I loved mathematics and physics from a very young age. I had a few interesting talents in art and so on. So I had a reasonable life. And then when I, um, and I, I met my college sweetheart when we were 18, fell madly in love, uh, married her when we were 25, was given to amazing children, like, you know, the, the kind you dream of. And then uh, for some reason, I, I was educated in public schools, public universities in Egypt. So, you know, you don't really dream of going far in life, you know, it's like a reasonable education, but not Harvard. And and by age 29, I had everything, like literally everything you can dream of. 
beautiful, amazing woman in my life. Uh, the big house with the swimming pool and the cars parked outside and the kids playing around in the garden. And, you know, I could, I had enough money. I, I was mathematically reasonably good to trade in the stock market. Literally, I could print money on demand. It's like if I needed $12,000 tomorrow, I trade for half an hour today. It's as simple as that, right? And and it's uh, it's basically... Uh, the more I was blessed with those things, the more miserable I became, which was quite mm. unusual. No, not unusual now that I look back at it and with all of my very rich and, and famous friends that I made over the years, which are all miserable. Uh, you know, the, the truth is the more, the more we have uh, doesn't really have much impact on happiness. And sometimes it has an adverse impact on happiness. And, and that's, I think, um, in, if you look back at it at that time, felt like, oh my God, my blessing is going away. I, especially, you know, that you have the resources. So I threw money at the problem, you know, vacations, cars, you know, suits, whatever I could find, gadgets. And I couldn't come out of my unhappiness. But now that I look back at it, it was basically, I don't know how to say it. Uh, I, I, I got my middle age crisis when I was 29. Mm. Okay. And, and normally the middle age crisis is a reason for us to go and reflect and say, is that what you, is that how you want to live your life? I mean, you've been climbing that ladder for 25, 30 years of adult, uh, adulthood. And now you realize that this is not what you want to be doing. And, and I think that's exactly what happened to me. I, by age 29, I realized that chasing the world like we all do is probably not the wisest thing to do. And so I took, I took a turn and I tried to prioritize my happiness. And since then, it started to pay off. It, it, really, it really made a ma massive difference to my life and, and now to many others through my work. And so you got a job at Google X. Tell us a bit about what firstly Google X is and then how you went on to solve for happy. I, I, um, so I, I worked at, again, just so that you know how fortunate I am. Huh? I'm a civil engineer. Uh, you know, did really well in my civil engineering graduation project to the point that I started to get jobs even before I graduated. And, uh, and for some reason, I uh, bump my, my car's bumper, uh, you know, in a traffic light against someone who comes out of the car to see what's happening, turns out to be my best friend. And he goes like, oh, it's you. We need a civil engineer who likes computers. And he worked at IBM. Right. And, and I can tell you, my life was full of coincidences like that, where I ended up working at IBM, then Microsoft and Google. And, and I um, at Google, I started as the, the, the vice president of emerging markets. So I actually started half of Google's operations globally, which is an incredible ride, an incredible mm. experience. And, and to start a, a Google operation is not about hiring a few salespeople. It's really about, you know, we, I, I think we brought Google to 102 languages where, you know, you, you put Google in Bengali, you change Bangladesh. You really give them knowledge and democracy of information and e-commerce and so on. It's wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, what you could do uh, with Google at the time. And then I went to Google X. Google X is that innovation arm of Google, the part that does, um, uh, you know, self-driving cars and Google Glass and Makani and all of those, Loon and all of those famous projects. So it's, the, it's those ideas that are out there where we have the opportunity to work with the smartest people on the planet and the most exciting, uh, uh, you know, projects out there. Uh, in a company that I truly loved. And, and you know, basically, uh, um, I, I just was, again, 
for some reason, incredibly fortunate until, of course, uh, at the time I had been doing happiness research for myself for 15 years. I was the happiest person you can find. Nothing would dent my happiness. Like Egyptian, uh, Muhammad Ali is my actual name. So I traveled to the U.S. once a month. I would land in, you know, any of the major airports and those homeland security people would go like, oh, there you are. Answer the same 10 questions you asked last, uh, we asked you last time, because every time I would get a random security check, mm. right? And, and I would stand in queues for two hours after a 14 hours flight, completely with a smile on my face. Nothing could dent my happiness. And then life tests me uh, in the most um, shaking way, I, I would probably say. Uh, so my wonderful, um, I told you I had two children, Ali, my son, who was a tiny little Zen monk since the day he was born. Uh, and Aya, my daughter, who is the sunshine, uh, literally the sunshine. So she basically has all of that incredible energy. She wants to be fun. She wants to take us out. Amazing, amazing kids. Uh, Aya came home uh, from Montreal for uh, summer vacations. Ali was planning to tour the US. He played the guitar at the time. Uh, the bass guitar. And then he said, Papa, you know what? I really feel compelled. It's his exact words. I feel compelled to come and see you guys before I start the tour. Where and was I he was living? Like, okay. He was in Boston. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he, uh, and Ali, uh, you know, compelled, of course, Habibi, I'll buy you a ticket, come over. And now I'm like over the moon. I have both of my kids coming and it's wonderful. Uh, four days in, Ali gets a very strong belly pain and we take him to a, a hospital. They prescribe an appendectomy, so basically an appendix inflammation. It's the simplest surgical operation known to humankind. And four hours in, Ali dies. Uh, basically, they made a tiny mistake, followed by another tiny mistake, five, five mistakes in a row. And, uh, and yeah, and, and you lose your child. And, and they say that those moments are the moments where we reflect and find purpose. And yeah, I don't know if that's true, but to me, it was the moment where I, um, it was the ultimate test, if you want. It was basically, can you, you know, can you find happiness when you're the chief business officer of Google X? Yeah, it's not that difficult, mm. right? Uh, but can you find happiness when you lose uh, your, your child? Ali, Ali was not my son only. He was my son. He was my best friend. And he was so wise, Habibi. He was so wise that he was my absolute teacher. So a lot of what I know about life comes surprisingly from Ali. So uh, when he was 16, I used to tell the world that he uh, was so wise that when I grow older, I want to be like Ali. And, and I, uh, and I, yeah, I think I'm now almost now starting to become like Ali, believe it or not, six years after he left. But yeah, so I lose Ali. And, um, and, and until that moment, I thought my purpose in life was to help innovative technology startups change the world. That's, that's what I thought my purpose in life was. It's my, my Harvard Business Review mission statement, if you want. Like, Mo, you have to define a purpose and go chase it for the rest of your life. And yeah, uh, four days after Ali dies, uh, his sister comes to me and he sa she says, Papa, Ali had a dream and he told me about it and I think you should know. And I said, what, baby? And she said, he, he said he dreamt he was everywhere and part of everyone. 
and that it felt, I still cry thinking about it today. It felt, he said, it felt so amazing that I didn't want to go back to my body. And so blurred by the experience, if you want my mind being foggy and with the makeup that I am a businessman and a business leader, I, I can promise you, as I look at it now, I, I heard it in my ears as a, talk, as a quota, as a target. I heard it almost as if Aya was telling me, Papa, Ali set your target to being everywhere and part of everyone. Okay. And at the time I was at Google and everything at, at Google is in billions. We, we know how to reach billions. And so I remember very vividly that I looked the other way and I said, sure, Habibi. Habibi is my love in Arabic. I said, sure, Habibi, consider it done. Okay. And so I turn around and 17 days after he dies, I sit down and I write. And I'm writing for many reasons. One is I needed to find my own peace and happiness. But I also wanted to document what he taught me. I, I couldn't afford to forget what he taught me. And my objective was very straightforward. If I could write what he taught me about happiness and spread it at the time, the target was to 10 million people. If I could reach 10 million people with his message of happiness, get him to get them to know him as much as I knew him, love him as much as I loved him, then through six degrees of separation in a hundred years time, he'll be everywhere and part of everyone. That was my mathematics. And then, yeah, and then life decides that this was a good idea, I think. And, and, so, and so six weeks after Ali, after the, pub, the book is published, I, uh, I, I was on, on a Channel 4 interview in the UK and my videos started to go viral on the web. Eight weeks in, we had reached 110 million people. And clearly the mission was on track. So 10 million was overachieved. And, and that's where we sat down and said, okay, you know, maybe I should actually dedicate my life to this. So I, I left Google uh, a year and a half after. And yeah, I've been, I mean, I still, of course, I'm a businessman and an investor and everything, but most of my life and effort and resources and, and time is dedicated to the idea of spreading a message of happiness to a billion people. It's beautiful. Can you take us through what Ali said to you and your wife and your daughter before he actually mm -hmm. was even ill about what he wanted you to do? Oh, you read everything, didn't you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Ali, Ali uh, okay, so, so if you're not spiritual, you may not understand this, but I can promise you. So I, Ali died due to a medical error. None of us anticipated that. I promise you he left so many signs that he knew he just knew okay mm. one one of the signs for example is he was planning to change majors hmm? and he spoke to his mother about it i was traveling on business and i said okay when we get together in dubai we'll talk about it it meant that he would have to leave from montreal to toronto sorry from boston to toronto and for the four days before he went to the operation i would i would tell him ali can we please sit down and discuss this so that it's done with and he would tell me, Papa, no, forget it, Papa, it's okay. I don't think I'm going to make it, was his word. He didn't say, I changed my mind, okay? He said, Ali, Ali spoke more English than Arabic. And he, in his exact words, he said, Papa, I don't think I'm going to make it. So it's okay, it's okay, Papa, I don't think I'm going to make it. And two days before he died, he sits us down in a... In a, in a restaurant, we were having lunch together. And Ali didn't speak much. Like any sage that you've ever met, mm. he, would, he would simply, 
listen, ask questions, and rarely ever speaks. If he spoke, it was pure wisdom or incredibly funny, uh, uh, whatever comedy he was about, right? That day was, I think, the only time in my life I've heard Ali speak for 40 minutes straight. Okay, so he he started to speak. We started to interrupt him. So he sort of waved his hand and said, shut up, sort of. And and basically started to look at each of us. It was me, Nibel, his mother, and, uh, and Aya, his sister. And he would look us in the eye and speak for 10 minutes about how much he loved us, how grateful he, are, he is for having his in, us in his life, all of the things that he learned from us, all of the things that, you know, may, makes him proud of us, especially his mother and his sister. You know, he was so loving. And, you know, I'm so proud of you, Mama. And then he would end up with one or two things. He would say, uh, but there are a couple of things I want you to change about your life, almost like a, a dying grandpa dictating his will. And he, to me, he says, Papa, I never want you to stop working, which I have to tell you was clearly my intention. I mean, I, I wear $19 t-shirts. I've gone through that ego part of my life. I don't need much. So, so, you know, why would I kill myself working and traveling all the time? He said, I never want you to stop working, but I want you to start doing things that depend on your heart a little more often. Okay. And believe it or not, that's been the quest of my life for the last six years. So I, I didn't stop working. Actually, I'm, I, today I work harder than I've ever worked. Okay. I worked on a startup that has the potential to be quite big so that hopefully all of the money that comes from it goes behind the mission of most of the money that comes from it comes behind goes behind one billion happy uh, but I also you know I'm a podcaster my my podcast is now in the top 10 percent worldwide I spend a lot of time working on it um, I'm a um, an author so I write very frequently several hours a day uh, you know I have all of the mission work and all of one billion happy I'm a speaker often you know and so on and so uh, and so I've never worked uh, harder, but I actually work with my heart now, which is the biggest quest. I, I discovered four and a half years ago, uh, around seven months after Ali died, I, I promise you, my, so I'm, I'm, I'm a reasonably balanced left brain and right brain. I'm a reasonably balanced feminine and masculine. Uh, if you want, but I'm trained to be masculine. So to be an executive in business, an engineer, a mathematician, you rely a lot on your left brain. And I promise you, I woke up one day and my left brain told me, my masculine brain, as I call it, it told me, that's it. I can't take you any further than I have. And it was a serious shock to me because I am that like, I, I can analyze things and find the truth. And it was right because finding the truth is actually all in the feminine, believe it or not. And I know that most people who are highly associated with the masculine would not understand that. But, but now the way I do things is so different to that executive hmm, that was highly analytical, highly driven, highly control focused. Now I flow completely. I embrace paradoxes. I embrace my intuition. I wait. And I, you know, I, I go where, where life takes me a lot more than taking life where I want it mm. to be. It's all in the feminine. And you have no idea how much further this is going. 
right? So, so you plan and plan and plan and you do something and it reaches 12 people or you flow because Sarah calls you and says, Hey Mo, do you want to talk on a podcast? And I go like, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk. Right. And then, and then, you know, who knows how far this will go. Mm. Hmm? And, and it's been amazing that single advice that he gave me and how it completely changed my makeup, changed everything in me. And I take it to heart. Of course, I will spank him the day I meet him because I wish I could stop working. But anyway, it's a, it's a wonderful journey anyway. When you look back at Ali saying, you know, he was early 20s and I know he's a wise guy, but not many kids in their early 20s are sitting down with their parents and their sister and saying things like that. And when you hear about the dream that he spoke to your daughter about, how do you even make sense of that? He was not a normal human being. I don't know exactly what made Ali Ali, but he wasn't normal. He just wasn't normal. He uh, he had, uh, even the way he walked, even, I mean, there was something about this creature that when you hugged him, it just filled you with energy. It was, he, he had something into him in an interesting way that I fought half of his life. Because again, I'm that driven executive who is, you know, like everything is in the doing. Everything is on the masculine side of the brain. Do, do, do. You know, unless you do, nothing really exists. And Ali was this Zen monk, right? He walked slowly. He spoke very little. He was completely content. Loved himself fully. Like with all of his mistakes, he would make fun of his faults. Hmm? And say, <laughs> that's who I am. I love it. Right. And, and, and it's funny. Huh? And, and I don't know. I think it's the mix between the incredible love that his mother gave him. Uh, and, and something in his makeup. I mean, when he was four months old, he would wake up in bed and, uh, you know, with a wet diaper at 4 a.m. in the morning and look at the, at the ceiling and not cry. And, you know, when, when mommy wakes up, he would look at her and sort of hint like, mommy, you know, <laughs> down there, right? It's, it's unbelievable, really. Is it, is it nurture or nature? I believe it's a bit of both, but he wasn't a normal human being. He was a gift in every possible way. He's a blessing that is just, you know, I, I can't have ever enough gratitude for having him in my life. The last moment that you spent with Ali when you told Nabel that, well, you actually hadn't told her that, that he had passed, but you knew that he had. Can you tell us what she said to him? She said, Habibi, you're finally home. He didn't belong here. I don't mm. think he did. So Nibel, Nibel is the most emotional, wonderful, kind, tender woman on, you know, I've ever met. And, and she loved him so deeply. And both of us, you know, both of us still miss him today like nothing. Huh? But yeah, I, I, I dreaded the moment where I walked to her and I said, baby, I don't think he's going to make it. Mm. And she said, Mo, she said, Habibi, take me to him. And I said, no, no, it's okay. You don't, you don't, you don't want to see him in that state. And she said, take me to him. And she walked in like a hero. Mm, stood next to him, kissed him on, her, on his forehead. And I will tell you, he looked so handsome. Mm? It's so much peace. And she kissed him on the forehead and said, Habibi, you're finally home. 
And it's a big question because, you know, that's probably the biggest debate any, you know, that's raging in our world today is, is there really anything after we leave this life? Is there home? Okay. And I, a big part of what I did in Soul for Happy was to try and dis- demystify the spiritual issues from a science point of view. Mm. But if you have a basic understanding of cosmology, of, of basically how the Big Bang works, uh, of the theory of relativity and the relativity of time specifically, and if you have a basic understanding of quantum physics, uh, you would understand for certain, not because of spiritual fables, but because of absolute science, that, that death is not the opposite of life. Death is the opposite of birth. We, we, we come to this level of the game, life in the physical form, uh, through a portal called birth, and we live through a portal called death. But life happens during, before, and after. Okay, Life is always there. Life is before physical matter. That is the absolute basis of, uh, of quantum physics. Matter only exists when one observed by life. And, and when you really think deeply about it, it doesn't really matter if reincarnation is what happens to us afterwards or if it's, uh, or if it's heaven and hell or if it's whatever, right? Uh, but the truth is I am not this physical form. Part of me is this physical form. This is the avatar I use to navigate this physical world, okay? But I can promise you, hmm, that there was an essence in that boy uh, that animated in him, uh, animated his physical form and made it Ali. And that the minute that essence left his body, it was no longer Ali. Mm. Okay. That this body within hours starts to decay just like a piece of meat. We're not that body. Okay. That essence, I can assure you, remains. Hmm? And because that essence remains and because Nibel and I were you know, this spiritual couple for 28 years, uh, you know, and so we discussed those things extensively. It didn't come to us as an issue of belief. It, it, it came to us as an issue of knowing that I have less certainty than I, that I will live another day than certainty that I will be where Ali is today sometime in the future. Okay, so so the only certainty I have is I and I will end up where Ali is, whether that's tomorrow by being struck by a by lightning or being hit by a car, or in seventy years' time when I'm on my deathbed, you know, uh, dying of old age. I don't know. Okay, but when you really think about it, the difference between tomorrow and seventy years is Mm. that Hmm? time, you know, is what life is what you make of it. Okay. And when you understand that, you understand that basically all I can do between the time I have now and the time I go to be with Ali is to make use of this life. So if you, if you consider birth as one cover of the book and death is the other cover of the book, what matters is the story in between. This is why we're here. Mm. Right. And part of my story has that incredible blessing of being given the gift of such a wonderful being, right? But it also has the harshness and the pain of missing him until today, six years later, I still cry thinking about him. Huh? And, and between, be, because of that, because of that emotion and that feeling and that journey and that roller coaster ride, that's what life is about, okay? That's living. Mm-hmm. Living is not to say it ended because Ali left. Living is to say 
it became incredible the day he joined my life. And it was amazing when he was here. And then it took a turn when he left. But it still is there for me to engage, to make a difference, to spread his message, to, to enjoy my love for him. Understand, love is completely misunderstood. Hmm? The joy of love is the feeling I have for Ali. Yeah, it's complimented. It feels better if I can hug him too. But feeling that way, that's what love is. Mm. You know, wanting to have something in return in soul for happy, I call that a conditional love. It's, it's, it's love based on a condition. It's like, Ali, as long as you make me laugh, I will love you. Or as long as you're alive, I will love you. That doesn't work. Hmm? Pure, true love. And that's not only father to, to son. That's between all of us. Hmm? Pure, true love is I love you. And that's it. And that love is the joy I have because I can feel it. You also talk about within love, the more love you give away, mm. the more you will feel. Yeah. So I have no, I have no scientific evidence of that. That, ch- that chapter is what I call my unscientific <laughs> chapter. Okay. But, but I, I would love to imagine that just like the law of conservation of energy, there is the law of conservation of love and there is the law of conservation of giving. Okay, that that all of the love that you give to the world comes back to you in leaps and bounds. And I was speaking in a in an event called Wisdom in Business, I think, uh, around eight months ago, before you know November last year, and I cried like a baby on the stage because I suddenly recognized that life took away Ali's love from me, so that the love that he gave me. And replaced it with the love of tens of thousands of people. I feel so loved, Sarah. It is, it, it is just unbearable, to be honest. Like the, and, and it's not because of anything I do. It's because of everything I feel. I, I feel I want people to be happy. And when people see that in me, when they see me, you know, trying to really, really, really make a difference, not because I can, everyone can, believe it or not, every single one of us, if we wanted to make others happy, we can. Hmm? But, but do we want to? Do we want it enough? Do we want to? Do we give that love to others? And when you give that love to others, something amazing happens. Like literally, the world, the universe bulges with that love that you put out there and it goes like, and then pours love back at you. Okay. And, and it's amazing when you think about it. Huh? It's, it's just like the, the second law of thermodynamics. It just doesn't go to waste. It doesn't, it doesn't get destroyed. It doesn't start from scratch. It, you have to give it so that you get it back. But self-love you talk about is oh. some of the most important love that you could ever have. And, and it's the hardest love to do, to, to give. Because sadly, because we grow in the Western world, um, with the expectation that you have to earn love, right? Which is the worst thing we've ever done to our kids. And I actually think one of the things we've done really well with Ali and Aya is that it, you know, the certain things were conditional. It's like, if you wanted me to be kind to you and give you an allowance and right, you need to finish your homework, maybe whatever. Mm. But whether you finish your homework or not, you're loved. That's in, that's, that's, it's, uh, you know, irrelevant. Love is constant. It's unconditional. Hmm? And 
other dealings may require a bit of negotiation. And, and, and the, the idea of us uh, loving ourselves, sadly, is hindered by our society's way of raising us to believe that we need to be a certain way or a certain shape or a certain form or behave in a certain way to be loved. And that's absolute bullshit, if you don't mind me saying. Okay. The, the, the truth is every one of us, hmm, if we're truly who we are, is lovable. Okay. The only thing that's not lovable about some of us is our ego. Mm. Hmm? And our ego is not us. So even the most evil people out there in the world, hmm, that's not the pure child that was born in them that is behaving. This is the ego and conditioning that made them this narcissistic or this evil or this criminal and so on and so forth. Inside, we're good. Hmm? And most of the humans, I mean, reality is I meet, I know tens of thousands of people, like I know them to the point that next time when, when I meet them, I'll hug them, I'll greet them by name. And I remember the conversation we spoke about last time, but I meet hundreds of thousands of people, you know, every, every two, two, three years through the events I go to and so on and so forth. And I will tell you every, almost every, almost every person you meet is wonderful. Mm. Okay. It, it really is so true. People, by definition, by default, our default nature is beautiful, okay? Whether you're curvy or thin, hmm? whether you're tall or short, whether you're mathematically adept or creative, that's irrelevant because all of that is varied in the eye of the beholder, okay? So, I, you know, if you go to any dating site, you will realize that there are people that will only date a skinny person and others that will only date a curvy person. Okay. And by definition, if you're curvy, you're not going to be liked by the ones that like the skinny. And if you're skinny, you're not going to be liked by the ones that like curvy. And, and, and that's absolutely okay. Hmm? The challenge is we were raised to believe that we need to be something that everyone loves, everyone appreciates, everyone approves of. Crazy. It's never going to happen. By the definition of it, hmm? if I am bold, you know, some girls are going to look at me and say, ooh, so handsome. And others are going to look at me and say, oh my God, scary, right? And, and that's the definition. So I can't assume there is any mathematical formula that gets me to be liked by everyone. So what's the wise thing to do? The wise thing to do is that if, if someone doesn't like bold, hmm, I simply should say, good, then I'm not for you. Right. And then go for the one that likes bold. And then, hey, look at me. I'm one of the best out there. It's like a good sample here. Look how bold I am. Right. And, and, and that is the idea. And Ali, again, surprisingly, was the one that taught me this. Mm. So he was nine years of age. He was going through his 11th school. Okay. And, um, and, you know, Ali wasn't really easy with finding friends because he was very picky. And anyway, in that specific experience, he uh, comes home the, next, the second day in school and he says, I met a boy, uh, he's fun, his name is uh, George, okay? And George, uh, Ali was that tiny little Zen monk, George was the devil himself, like literally. I, I, I'm not making, I remember him until now. Eh? He runs with energy all over the place, breaks things, doesn't know that he's breaking them, shouts, shouts, shouts all the time. It was right, like the devil himself, okay? And anyway, three days later, Ali comes back and says, Papa, if George calls, tell him I don't want to be his friend anymore. He's nine years old at the time. Hmm? And I go like, why, Ali? And he says, it's, it's too much effort, Papa. It's just too much effort. Okay, so George calls. 
literally seven minutes later, hi, is Ali there? And I go like, hi, yes, George, but he said he doesn't want to be your friend anymore. He said, okay, good, I'm coming. What does that mean? Like he doesn't, didn't listen. Anyway, he shows up at the door and, you know, he comes into our house and, you know, his mother drives away and Ali comes down and he goes like, George, as we spoke at school, I really don't want to be your friend anymore. Okay. You're welcome to stay here until ma- your mom comes to pick you up. But I, I really don't want you to be my friend. So I asked him afterwards and I said, how come Ali, you don't have any other friends? And he said, Papa, I'm not like George. Okay. So if I want to fit in, I didn't, he didn't use the word fit in, but he used some other word and said, if I want to be with George, I have to put in so much effort. Okay. So much energy and not be myself to barely be like him enough to like me. Okay. Why don't I just wait and be like I am and sooner or later, someone will show up that likes me as I am. Okay. And literally that's exactly what happened. A week later, Jack showed up. Then a week later, Nick showed up, Sam showed up, and they became the most loved group in school. Why? Because they were so genuine to who they were. Okay. They didn't pretend at all. And as his mother always used to tell him the song from Sting, be yourself no matter what they say. Ah, okay. Beautiful. So he would, he, he, yeah, he would walk around the house shaking his head, be yourself no matter what they say. And, that, and that's what he did. And I encourage people to understand that you're lovable. Whether you're George the devil, okay, I don't, I don't mean the devil, but the devilish kid, you know, energetic. There are kids that life that love that. Whether you're the Zen monk, there are others that love that. Just find your tribe and you'll be fine. Okay. And you'll be loved and you will feel that you need, you're enough. You don't need anything to be more than you are. Okay. And that's where self-love starts mm. to understand that there is no specific trait that makes us good and other trait that makes us bad. That by not doing evil and hurting others, that's it. You're good enough. All you are asked to is to not hurt others. And then beyond that, tall, short, curvy, brown, blue, you know, whatever. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There is someone out there that thinks you're the shit. Okay? He thinks you're the best thing ever and that you're really how it should be and would love you unconditionally and conditionally. So you might as well love yourself that way as well. It's a funny thing, you know, because I just, it's its so true. Like when you move past the ego and say, not everyone's going to love me and I can deal with that, you just see the love pouring in when you are yourself. And when you let your barrier down and you hold love towards others that is absolutely unconditional. Of course, because there is nothing, because we humans, as much as we think we can fool others, we can't be fooled. Okay. If I, if I pretend to be a Middle Eastern man who's strong and, you know, I can take the pain of losing my son, it's not going to be, it's not going to show that the reality is I am in pain sometimes. Okay. Well, why would I hide that? And people are attracted to that vulnerability to that mm. ge- genuine part of you. Yes. Okay. We, we, we're so fed up with all of the Instagram photos and all of the supermodeling and all. We are so fed up of that. We see through it. We, we're so fed up of the fake reality shows that have no reality in them. Okay. We just want the true person that we don't want to guess around. Okay. And, and by the way, a few defects make us feel that you're actually mm. human. Mm. That's so true.
You know, going back to the start of our conversation when you were talking about happiness, why do you think that when you were so fortunate, you had so much money, you had everything you wanted, you had a beautiful family, why do you think that you felt so unhappy then? Because happiness is not found in any of those, Mm. okay? Happiness is a very simple formula. Any moment in your life where you felt happy was a moment where the events of your life matched your expectations of how life should be, okay? It's as simple as that. Life, you know, can give you rain, and we have no idea if rain is going to make you happy or unhappy, right? If you want to water your plants, rain is going to make you happy. If you want a suntan, Rain is going to make you unhappy, Mm. right? Life can give you a lockdown hmm? and we have no idea if that's going to make you happy or unhappy. If you're an introvert and you've been really trying to stay at home for a while, you're going to be dancing. Hmm? And and it's it's really as simple as that. And it changes from person to person, changes from situation to situation. So some days you will love being locked down and other days you will hate being locked down. It's based on what you want that day. Mm. Okay. So, so the truth is nothing will ever make you happy unless it's what you expect life to give you. Happiness is that feeling of contentment, okay? And the most interesting side of happiness is happiness is not the state that you acquire, okay? Happiness is the baseline that gets that gets disrupted with unhappiness. Let, let me explain that. It's mm. really important. Every child you've ever met, if they're given their basic needs for survival, if they're loved, save you know, safe, fed, and so on, warm, and so on, their state is happy. The the, the default setting of humans is happy, okay? Just like the default setting of humans is healthy, right? Then things come into your body, germs or whatever, and that makes you unhealthy. That's That's the interruption. It's not the base. The base is happy. The base is healthy. Now, For us, what happens is that unhappiness comes to us when the events miss our expectations. Mm. When your brain does a calculation and goes like, who's this guy? He's wearing a blue t-shirt. He's bald. You know, is this going to be the waste of my time? Your brain thinks that way and you get that little feeling of anxiety and you go like, this is a waste of my time. You feel a little unhappy. Okay. Then, you know, I don't know. I say something, you like it. You go like, ah, that's interesting. That's not a waste of my time. I'm happy. It meets my expectations. Right. This this toggle between events meet my expectations, events meet miss my expectations, believe it or not, is just a survival mechanism. It's our brains telling us, hey, by the way, something here needs your attention. Okay, if you're going to spend an hour listening to this podcast, it seems it's going to be a waste of your hour. Maybe you shouldn't. Okay, or if you're going to spend an hour listening to this podcast, it's actually a very good use of your time. I encourage you to do that. Now, Mm. those two emotions are very different in every possible way, Mm? including the hormonal makeup of our body when they occur. Mm? The challenge with our life today is that that emotion, contentment, peaceful feeling of I'm okay with life as it is called happiness mm? has been replaced in the modern world with another emotion that's called fun and pleasure, and and, and elation, and excitement, okay? Why? Because these are products, Coca-Cola, and the club around the door, and the video game maker, and all of, you know, the movie makers, they can sell you this. They cannot sell you contentment. Contentment is the opposite of capitalism, okay? Contentment is, I actually don't want the iPhone 10. I'm very happy with my iPhone 6. It's still working well. 
right? So that feeling of contentment, I'm okay with life as it is, is not good for capitalism. So we fight it with advertising, with messages, with conviction that weapons of mass distraction, as I call them, are better than happiness. Okay, that it's better for me to go out there and go on a vacation and buy a car and go to a party and do all of that stuff than it is to sit with myself and be calm and content. Now, the, the makeup of us, as I said, the, the hormonal makeup is actually very different. So when we are chasing fun and excitement and wealth and success and promotions and all of that, what do we get in our bodies? We get dopamine. Mm. Okay, Dopamine is a reward hormone that basically is telling your body, get more of this. We want more of this. Chase it. Chase it. Okay. And as you chase it, hmm, your, your, your receptors, your dopamine receptors in your brain are down regulating because of the amount of dopamine in your brain, in your blood. Okay. So they're basically saying, no, no, hold on. We had this many milligrams. That's not enough. Now we need double that to feel excited. And so this is what happens to us. We go from, you know, uh, a, a nice little jog on, on the, on the beach to uh, hikes that go up the Mount Everest to jumping out of airplanes. We're just constantly looking for more and more and more reward, right? The problem is happiness, on the other hand, as I define it, events meeting expectations, I, I'm okay with life as it is, gets serotonin, which is a calmer. The ser serotonin is basically saying, okay, life seems to be okay now. I need to rest, restore, digest my food, you know, reflect, organize my thinking. And for that, I'm going to give you serotonin, which basically says, stay exactly as you are. Don't do anything. Okay. When you get dopamine in your blood, serotonin by definition goes away. You can't have a calmer stay when you have the excitatory of dopamine. And so when we get so addicted to fun, to pleasure, to acquisition, to gifts, to rewards, to achievements, hmm, it becomes almost impossible to find contentment which is what real happiness is, because that is what we're constantly seeking now. We can't replace it with the serotonin because there is no more serotonin to be found. Okay. Now that is not unusual. I've, mm. you know, since I wrote Soul for Happy, I've trained hundreds of thousands of people, including some billionaires. Right. And I would say 90% of them are miserable. They, they have everything you can think of, but the problem is they compare to what they could have, which the other billionaire has. Mm. The supermodels, uh, they, they compare to the skinnier supermodel. Okay. Uh, you know, one of the, of the most well misunderstood topics about happiness is that Scandinavian countries are the happiest people in the world. No, Scandinavian company countries have the highest subjective well-being. So the highest quality of life in the world, but also the highest suicide rate. And you go like, how can you have the highest suicide rate when your, when your life is so good? It's because as you downregulate and say, okay, life is amazing, your expectations go, but it should be more amazing. Okay. My girlfriend shouldn't uh, uh, ever, you know, dislike me and my country shouldn't ever have an opinion that differs from me and the snow shouldn't, uh, shouldn't come in winter. Right. And if you say, if you think of life that way, events will never meet your expectations and you'll never be happy. So I had everything. I had cars where I would get in the car. Hmm? And seven minutes later, I go like, oh, but I like that color more. Right? How can you be happy that way if you're never content? So what is the key, would you say, to happiness? My key is very straightforward. Happiness is like fitness. Okay? 
if you if you go around Melbourne, you'll you'll have a hundred thousand you know um, personal trainers that will make it look that physical fitness is very complicated. It isn't. Okay, if you make fitness your priority and you exercise four to five times a week, you're going to be fit. It's as simple as that, right? So at the top level, fitness is quite easy. We complicate it when we get into the details. At the top level, happiness is super simple. If you make it your priority and go to the happiness gym four to five times a week, you'll be happy. Mm. Okay. And, and it's as simple as that. So what does it mean to make happiness your priority is the biggest question. Because I will tell you openly, we're all trained to make success our priority, to make ego our priority, to make the way people think of us our priority. And so we achieve. Okay. So if you, if you tell yourself success is my priority or wealth is my priority, when you interview for a new job, you interview for a job that pays $100 more. Right. And what are you likely to find? You're likely to find the job that pays a hundred million, a hundred dollars more, even if it makes you miserable. Right. If you made happiness your priority, you would say, when I interview for the next job, I will interview for a job that makes me happier, even if it pays a hundred dollars less. Right. And if that's the case, you're likely to find the job that makes you happier. And by definition, that cycle makes you happier and happier in life. Right. So making happiness your priority basically means I will wake up every morning and I will review my life, not in light of what others think of me, not in light of how much money I made, not in light of, of the, of the kind of jeans I wear or the, or the house I own. I will wake up every morning and review my life in terms of how happy I am. Yes. And, if, and if I make that choice, then I need to put in the work and the work is very straightforward. It's so simple, Sarah. Four times a week, watch a video, read a book, uh, or spend time with people who, are, who, who appear to be constantly happy. Okay. And when you do that, you will learn what it is that's making you unhappy. Remember, happiness is the absence of unhappiness. There is nothing you can do to become happy. The only thing you can do is to remove the reasons for unhappiness. Right. So tell yourself, why am I unhappy? When I did that exercise when I was in my 30s, mm. I realized I was unhappy because I was a control freak. Great. Clear. I'm a control freak. I expect life to always conform to my control freakishness. Life never conforms anyway. And so I'm constantly miserable. Right. Great. Now that I know that I need to work on my control freakishness. Mm. I need to let go of control. I need to read about control. I need to sit with people who seem to be happy-go-lucky. I need, I, I, right? I work at it. Hmm? So is there one answer, you know, like write your gratitude journal every night or meditate every morning? Yes, those things work. Hmm? But the trick is, if you want to address this like an engineer, understand what the problem is before you start solving it. Yes. Okay. And the problem is twofold. One is you're not making happiness your priority. You're making other things your priority and you're doing really well. Well done. Right. You're succeeding in your, on your priorities and not happy. Okay. And the second is you don't know what's making you unhappy. So you're not able to fix it. Mm. If you fix those two. Okay. I will ask you to do me a favor and go one step further to join our mission. Okay. And one billion happy is basically prioritize your happiness, invest in your happiness so that you learn how to be happy. And the third step is make two people happy. Just basically go to your sister and your best friend and say, guys, I discovered this new thing. Happiness is the absence of unhappiness. You want to talk about it? I want to talk about it. Please, 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 let's talk about it. Right? And, and basically make another person happy. And then very quickly, like my wonderful son Ali, you'll be surrounded by people that are seeking happiness. Mm. And everything will work. It's really not that complicated. That's great. 
When you talk about expectations for happiness, mm. how do we then put things in our mind that we to not have expectations? Come how on. do we frame I'm, my ex- that? My, ex- my expectation is one billion happy. Yeah. It's like th- there's no bigger expectation than that. So if you don't get it, that will make you um, unhappy? That's the point. The point point is for you to have a fulfilled life, I'm not saying drop success and go uh, surfing for the rest of your life. Yeah. Okay. A, A balanced life is a life of balance between happiness and success. We need to be successful, by the way, not because we want a bigger car, but because we're here in this world to deliver something. We're in, we're in this world to have an impact of some sort. Okay. Whatever that impact will, will differ, uh, whatever that impact is, will differ between one person and another, but you're here to make a difference. So you need to be successful, hmm? but being successful without happiness is failure. Just like being happy without success is failure. So how do you find that balance? I differentiate between what I call expectation and what I call ambition. Mm. Okay. Ambition is, I dream of making a billion people happy. I mean, I hope from our conversation, you realize I'm not stupid. Jesus took 2000 years to reach a billion people. Who am I? Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to reach a billion people. I'm telling you openly. Hmm? The dream here is that I will motivate a million people to become a million champions of happiness and they will reach a billion people. Okay, that's a much more digestible target. And by the way, and at the end of it, I will be completely forgotten. I swear to you, that's the actual mission statement. Okay, we will will motivate a million people to become champions for a billion people and we will be completely forgotten. Okay, if we manage to do that, then my ambition is, is put in perspective. I'm just one human. And if, by the way, if I don't reach a billion happy, do you think... On my deathbed, I'll go like, oh, you failed. Like, no, if I made you happy today, that's it. That's that's an incredible day. That's an incredible day. And by the way, if I made you happy and I made no other person happy for the rest of my life, that's a massive achievement, right? And, And that's the trick. The trick is ambitions are directional, hmm? targets of pathways where I want to take my life. I want my life to go this way. And I'm setting the target far enough so that that target cannot be achieved easily. So I can stretch myself, do the best that I can for the rest of my life. That's an ambition. One billion happy. Okay. The expectation is, oh my God, I'm with Sarah on her podcast today. I'm going to do the absolute best that I can so that I, you know, pour my heart out and hopefully people will find some message of happiness. Mm. Okay. And that's the extent of my control. And my expectation is at the end of this podcast, if I feel I did the best I could, that's it. I'm happy. I'm completely, it completely met my expectations. Whether maybe Australians speak a different accent and they wouldn't get my accent and I failed to deliver the message. Um, okay, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, it's not my choice, but I did the best that I could. Mm. And that makes me really happy. That's my expectation. How did you find happiness when Ali died? Happiness as defined by uh, uh, I'm okay with life as it is. Yeah. That's quite easy. Do you ha- did I have another choice? So most people don't get this. Huh? When Ali died, it seemed 
but I had one choice. And that choice was, I'm going to grieve for the rest of my life. I'm going to hit my head against the wall for 27 years. And after 27 years on my deathbed, I will say life treated me badly. I'm the victim. Most people think that way. Okay. But the truth is you had two choices. Hmm? Choice one is you grieve for 27 years and it doesn't bring Ali back. Okay. And choice two is, you know what? Like every other feeling of sadness, this is a survival mechanism that's telling me to do something about it. Okay. And so what do I do about it? The question is, can I bring him back? No, sadly, I can't. So I revert to something I call committed acceptance. And committed acceptance is very straightforward. It's basically saying, if I cannot change the event, what I intend to do is to accept the event as the new baseline of my life and try to do whatever I can to make life better despite the presence of that event. Okay, so we have COVID-19, we have lockdown, right? I can promise you, you can hit your head against the wall to convince the government in Melbourne to let you out, okay? It's not going to happen tomorrow. So what can you do? You can tell yourself, all right, now that I'm here and it's clear that I have a curfew at 8 p.m. and it's clear that I'm not going to be out, I'm going to go and buy popcorn, Okay. And I'm going to, uh, to, to, uh, to plan a good movie and I'm going to spend a good time with a friend over a Skype call. Or if my boyfriend or girlfriend is around, then we're going to have a good time. Okay. And that's it. Right. It's as simple as that. The, the, the truth is if an event in your life is unavoidable, then committed acceptance is the smart choice. Now, some of us cannot get to committed acceptance. Why? Because we prefer to be looking at life as we're the victim. Let's get lazy here and not make life better. But hey, we have a very good excuse to say why we're miserable. Yeah, and by the way, I don't blame I don't blame anyone that gets into that place. But 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 it's not the wisest choice. The wisest choice is: Can I do something to make it slightly better today than it was yesterday? And a little bit better tomorrow than it is today. And a little bit, a bit better after tomorrow than it is tomorrow. And that's it, really. And that's the game of life in a nutshell. Life is simply going to allow you some ramps where you go a little better and a little better and a little better. And then whoops, you drop in a ditch and then you ramp a little better and a little better. And this is life. Okay, and it happens at the with the loss of Ali, or with the change of your manager, or the or with the relationship with your new boyfriend, or whatever it is. It's very simple. Okay, life goes on a honeymoon, and then it falls a little, and then it goes another honeymoon, and it falls a little, and that's how it is. And, and I think that's a good skill to learn. And when you learn it and become really good at it, it also applies to the loss of a child. What's the most mystical experience you've ever had? I was playing Halo. Some people may not know that, no, but I'm a very is. serious. Yeah, I'm a very serious video gamer. Yeah. And I, um, Halo is a, a game where I play as Master Chief, and I slay aliens. Yeah, violent. I understand, but we don't see them as aliens. We just see them as targets on the screen. And I've been struggling with my feminine side. I told you, I I, I was raised as a masculine Middle Eastern manly man. Okay, with a certain concept uh, that got developed as an executive and a businessman, as an engineer, that the masculine is the way to go through life. And then my left brain said, I can't take you any further. 
So I started to, and then I watched that incredible TED talk by Jill Bolte Taylor. If you haven't seen it, I've neuroscientist, seen it. yeah, 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 I've it's beautiful, it. huh? Yeah. Neuroscientist that got uh, a stroke yes. that disabled her left brain, so she left in her femi- lived in her feminine brain for a while, and it's beautiful. And then, and and so I decided that my key, you know, my my pathway to the feminine, to empowering my feminine, was. Um, was to uh, was to uh, associate first with the feminine quality I call flow, okay? And flow is not to fight upstream against life. It's almost if you imagine your yourself white water rafting. Flow as the feminine would be to just hit the wave enough to get keep yourself in direction. The masculine, believe it or not, would want to go upstream, okay? Forceful. I know how to do this and so on and so forth. And I was that. Until I was playing that level of Halo, Halo 4, level 1, where somehow uh, Halo was a, a game famous for its very, very uh, uh, realistic um, physics. So gravity is correct. If you could hit something, it falls on the right direction and so on and so forth. And in that level, uh, suddenly you open a door and you're in outer space. So all of the physics get messed up. Okay. And for 64 times, I attempted to go through four seconds of the game, and I couldn't. Until, for some reason, I've managed to access my feminine flow, right? Which basically said, this is not about thinking and planning where the gun is going to fall. Hmm? This is about actually living in the present moment and actually going to where the gun is going to be. So in zero gravity, you could shoot an alien and the gun would fly to the right instead of falling to the left. Okay. And I promise you, once I got into that mode, I got into the entire level from start to end without a single mistake. I also found the feminine quality I call rhythm. I found the feminine quality that was called embracing paradoxes. It was one of the most incredible experiences of my life. And of course, you may not understand that if you're not a video gamer, but then I applied that to everything in my life. Mm-hmm. Right. The ability to actually flow with life in a way that comes from the feminine, mm-hmm. which is not my biological makeup, mm-hmm. but, but come from the feminine quality, at least not entirely biased to my masculine qualities. In my recent history, I think of spiritual experience. I have many, many spiritual experiences in my life, but in my recent history of spiritual experiences, I think this was really, really some uh, life-altering experience to be able to discover what it's like to actually flow and flow with the rhythm and flow with paradoxes. When you have flow in your life, it just changes everything. That totally changes everything. And it's so much more effective. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how to tell you that, but I mean, I think people will be upset when I say this. It, you're, you know, the feminine is absolute genius mm. when you think about it. Again, and coming from a highly analytical brain like mine, it's so interesting because I used to address every problem with my brain by forcing myself into it. And then I realized that sometimes the universe is just throwing stuff at you that you can find with intuition, mm. right? I, I used to, ta- to, to drill my way through every path, hmm? pushing rocks up the mountain. And then I realized that the feminine will basically say, you know what, just f- flow and the, the, the life itself will take you to where you want to be, or even sometimes be, and sit still and do nothing mm. like the Chinese Wu Wei 
just stay, stay as you are. Hmm? And that will make so much more progress than it than the progress you make when you're constantly trying yes. to, 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 to drill your path up, up the mount. What's the lesson that took you the longest to learn? I mean, it's, it sounds like a repetition that I'm not in control at all. Mm. Again, when you get into the feminine, you start to realize that control is valuable sometimes but it's actually not valuable the other time. And for a very long time, again, because for years I was paid as an executive to control everything. Hmm? The, 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 the game of a senior chief business officer or whatever. I mean, I, by then I was reasonably okay, but throughout my life, my professional life, I was, played, I was paid to control the outcomes, right? And, and you know, now I believe very, very strongly that I am not doing anything. I'm being used. And again, surprisingly, a son, my son Ali taught me this in a way that was very, 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 very eye-opening. He came to me one day and he said, Papa, I want to say something, but I know it's going to upset you. And I was like, so why are you going to say it? And he says, it's important. I really want to say it, but please don't be upset. And I said, what, Ali? And he said, Papa, you're never going to change the world. I was like, why, Ali? Why, why don't you have that spark in you? You know, you, want, you should want to change the world. And he said, Papa, you're never going to change the world. All you can do is you change your little world. And if you change your little world, the responsibility of the universe or God, we believe in God. So he said God, but I said the universe just so that mm. I don't offend anyone. Hmm? Uh, uh, you know, the responsibility of the universe is to bring a bigger world your way, Right. All you really need to do is to be really good at changing your little world. And then if your little world is you, me, Ali, you, you me, Aya, and, and Nibel, and you do that really, really, really well, then a few friends will show up. Then, you know, the neighborhood will show up. Then your company will show up. Then your country will show up. Then the world will show up. Okay. And, and basically the example he gave is, you know, you, you're a, you're a sushi, you want to be a sushi chef. You know, you have to fan the rice for a while. And then when you really do it very well, they expand your responsibility a little bit. And then, you know, right. Step by step, you become something not by aiming for it in a Western way of, of defining purpose, but really by just becoming the best you can become. Right. And, and he was so spot on because you look at my life. I, I, I never expected to be talking about happiness and traveling around the world and being a best-selling author and having a successful podcast. I never thought of that, right? But all, you know, as, as I invested in trying to find my own happiness, hmm, people started to go like, okay, Mo, tell us a little more. And so I told them and then, you know, learned a little more and then tell us a little more. And then somehow when the time was right, life takes Ali and I now have to tell the whole world. Right. I, I did not go out to the whole world. All I did was go in and say, can I be better at this and be better at this and be better at this? And when you're ready, life comes. Your purpose shows up. You, you, you never really choose your life purpose, believe it or not. Your purpose chooses you mm. only when you're ready. Yes. What's the best advice you've ever been given? Life is a video game. Life is a video game. Uh, I wish, I wish I believed it earlier. I mean, from a tech point of view, believe it or not, there is there are quite a few eerie details that will tell you that we're completely in a simulation. But anyway, if it isn't, if you take the character of of life as it is, where it starts with a level and then it ends with a level, and you know, when I when I used to play with Ali again, let's take Halo so that we don't explain another game. 
I'm a very strategic left-brainer. And so when I played with Ali, I would start the level and go to the left and run like mad. And Ali would go like, Papa, where are you going? I'm like, Ali, the end of the level is here. He was like, who wants to get to the end of the level? You know, you get to the end of the level, you, you, you're done. You know, we're playing. Why, why would you want to stop playing? Where the, the game is about playing. And he would go to the places where there is, is explosions and smoke. Okay? And I'm like, but Ali, but that's stupid. This is the most difficult part of the level. And he was like, yeah, that's, that's where all the fun is. Right? That's where you develop and grow. And, and in his exact words, which completely redefined my life, he basically said, uh, your purpose as a gamer is to become the best gamer you can become. Okay? Your purpose is not to finish the level. Okay? Your purpose is not to be better than other gamers. Okay? Your purpose is to constantly push yourself to become the best gamer you can be. As compared to your own potential, I can be that good, I should be that good. And so what does that mean? It means you need to play. And that's it. Okay? You need to engage with the difficult parts of the game and the easy parts of the game and constantly play. And as you play, hmm, you become a better and better and better gamer. And so, many, so interestingly, huh, the most important parts for a gamer to become the best gamer they can become are the parts where the gamer actually goes through hardship. Okay? And, and when you really think about life, the, the real parts of your life that defined you are the harder parts. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I run an experiment when I do workshops. I call it the eraser test. And, and in the eraser test, I tell people, if I gave you a technology that would allow you to erase the worst parts of your life, knowing, knowing that by erasing them, you're going to erase everything that happened as a result, the people that you met, the things that you learned, whatever. Okay? Would you erase it? And 99% of all the people that I have run that test with, more than 20,000 people, okay, will say I would erase nothing at all. Mm. I would erase nothing at all. Uh, you know, it was hard then, but it's wonderful that I went through it now. Hmm? And, and, and the reality is, hmm, if that is the case about every hard situation you had in your life before, why are you complaining about this hard situation? Okay. I can promise you in five years' time, you're going to look back at this and say, well, I, want, I don't want to erase that. The lockdown is fine too, okay? Because it got me to where I should be. Mo, what is a life of greatness to you? A life of greatness is a life lived. And a life lived with a little bit of impact left behind. Ali got it right, Mo. You are making a huge difference to this world. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.